We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. You're listening to the Layman's Lounge podcast. And today we get to talk again with Sam Storms. He is the author of um, a bunch of books. The one we're going to be discussing today is called A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin and Three Things He'll Never Do. That was released this year through Crossway. Again, the book's called A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin and Three Things He'll Never Do. Um, Yeah, so thanks for making time to chat, chat today, Pastor. It's important because many of us are prone to doubt. We're all prone to wander. And in the book, you really show the severity of this issue when you say, and I'm going to quote from the book here, the single overriding and most debilitating factor that threatens to undermine everything in our Christian lives and in our relationship with God is the failure to understand, embrace, and enjoy the full and final forgiveness of our sins. The reasons you and I struggle to enjoy God is because we live in constant fear that he doesn't enjoy us. And um, I'm curious, since you're a pastor and you're counseling, discipling, was that in your own life you've come to that realization? Or is that just from chatting with so many people that that is the one? Both. (laughs) Certainly, certainly I think it took root in my own heart, first of all. Um, I mean, I'm no different from anybody else. I am plagued by uh, pangs of guilt, uh, you know, enduring seasons of lingering shame, convinced that uh, my past history, my present sins are disqualifying, that I'm, uh, that I'm, I'm really, a, you know, a hypocrite. And, but it also just comes from years and years of talking with Christians and just seeing how they live under this constant oppressive burden of feeling dirty. Their souls are just stained and they wake up in the morning, they go to bed at night, uh, convinced that they are a blight on the body of Christ, that God is fed up with them, that they can't seem to break free from the cycle of sin in which they're living. And this, this, and then of course the enemy comes in and he just kind of intensifies that and, um, and just kind of reinforces it. And I just find that people generally Christians as a whole um, focus so much on how they have sinned and they think very little on what God has done with their sin. And until you understand, I'm convinced until we come to understand the multiplicity of things that the Bible says about what God has done with our sin, we're never going to find the freedom uh, to really step out in faith and to give ourselves to one another, to give ourselves in the ministry of the Lord Um, you know, the people that I deal with on a daily basis, probably the same as are in churches all around the world. They just kind of sit there paralyzed. They, they're convinced they're disqualified. They're thinking to themselves, gosh, if these people only knew what I did yesterday, what I said this morning and how I just keep repeating it, they wouldn't want to come anywhere near me. And I think all of it ultimately comes from the fact that they haven't seen or Uh, embraced or meditated deeply on the extent to which God has done in dealing with their sin and laying it on Christ and simply removing it altogether from us. I know that for me, 
for I like to read a lot and for every one book I read about you know the a, a Christian view of film or you know um, a, a theology of you know inner Trinitarian dialogue I'm always reading a book about union or the gospel or something like that because I you I agree with you my circumstances are the same it's always like just knocking on the door just like hey are you sure you're you're such a scumbag <laughs> I hate um you know I did like mission trips like we've all done and I wonder if anyone has ever had the audacity to say this to you but like when you, you know my parents when I was younger or like you know sisters yeah and you're supposed to be this missionary guy or, and you're supposed to be that is the worst one have you ever had aren't you sure. supposed to be some pastor probably your wife or kids or something right oh yeah even close friends <laughs> and especially enemies oh, yeah, um, yeah uh, i mean we have to be honest uh, we are our our ultimate perfection is yet in the future it awaits the return of christ and the glorification of our bodies um, and until then, we are going to always struggle with feelings of, of guilt and shame and um, just thinking ourselves to be utterly useless to the body of Christ. You know, I'm, I'm just an embarrassment to the church. I should keep my mouth shut. I should just stay in my seat. Maybe I, don't, I shouldn't even show up at all. Um, and I, it really is. It's just coming down to the simple reality that the gospel is the only solution, understanding what God has done for us in Jesus. Uh, apart from that, it's hopeless. I, I love in the book when you, you, you say it's called a defiled conscience. And I'll read this, uh, this part of the book here about a defiled conscience, which is just helpful to name it, right? Sort of name something. Every, everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about when I refer to those occasions when your conscience feels dirty. I'm talking about what you feel and sense deep within you as you lie in your bed at night and reflect on the events of the day, the harsh words you spoke to your kids. Side note, that's the one I think every day. I'm always like, come on, like what's wrong with that? Like that is for me, that's the one. Um, continuing on here, the lie that you told your boss, um, hoping to gain advancement, the pride you felt in your heart when someone praised your efforts. I'm talking about what you feel and sense deep within when you wake up in the morning and lustful thoughts and sinful fantasies race through your mind. Where did that come from? You wonder aloud, what will God think of me now? And then you continue on. The fact that we could treat God with such indifference is profoundly unsettling. Oh my gosh. So as far as this, and I'll add one more sin there that I, uh, I don't do like a night. I work for myself now, but before when I work for someone else, I would always be on Facebook. And I know that's stealing. I'm like, stop being on Facebook because I'm getting paid by the hour to do that. And that one, like, that one, like, drove me insane because I can never stop. That was like a besetting sin. Anyways, as far as this defiled conscious and, and plaguing doubt you see in many Christians, is there a certain sort of like personality that gets that, like analytical people, or is it just kind of everyone or? Um, I do think it's everyone in one sense. I think the human condition, uh, we're all united in the fact that we have a conscience. Everybody has a conscience. And by a conscience, I'm talking about that, that dimension of the image of God in every man and woman by which we intuitively know what is right and what is wrong. 
And when we do what is right, our conscience reaffirms us. When we do what is wrong, we feel the sting of, of conviction. But there are there's a, there's a variety of conscience on a scale in terms of how sensitive people are. There are some people who have a very um, kind of uh, strong conscience in the sense that when they do sin, they just immediately say, yes, but I know I'm forgiven. Praise God. Let me get on with life. There are others who have such a incredibly um, sensitive conscience that just the the mere misstep, even though it may seem minor, it just paralyzes them. It It just knocks them for a loop, as it were, and then they struggle to believe that God could ever enjoy them or love them. And so I think there's a, there's a variation uh, among Christians, and maybe some of it is personality. Maybe some of it is uh, the way we were raised, how our parents treated us when we misbehaved. Um, uh, so, But everybody knows what it is like to feel the sting. What um, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, in, in Hebrews 9, when he talks about how the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from those dead works that, uh, you know, that we, we thought were honoring to God. In fact, we're not. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a differentiation and yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's gender specific. I don't think men are necessarily more or less sensitive in their conscience than women. Um, I think, uh, each of us probably knows ourselves better than anyone else. I know my own conscience I tend to have an overly sensitive conscience, uh, always have. So I kind of, I just tend to beat myself up uh, when I, when I'm failing. Uh, Others are quicker to be able to, you know, lay hold of the truth of the cross and the reality of forgiveness and move on. And that's wonderful. Um, But all of us, you know, we we find ourselves on various places on the spectrum of how tender or how strong our conscience may be. It's sort of one final question of that spectrum, if you will, is when you are counseling people or whatever, um, and in, in the book, you weave back and forth between like, how could God, you know, like think of like the, uh, the Vietnam vet, all the atrocities that, you know, he did back then. And he's like, how could God ever forgive that? Um, you know, that, but um, I think this generation now is more just since not a whole lot of that maybe is happening, or I don't know, there might be the, abor- the abortion. But I think a lot of people, it's just like the, well, how can I, now that I'm a Christian, just keep doing this? Have you seen it to be a lot of the older thing that I did do back before as a Christian? How can that apply to me? Or do you think it's more of like the, I say I'm a Christian, yet I keep surfing Facebook, or I keep you know looking at porn, or I keep being a jerk to my husband, or... I don't know that I can say definitively which is more prevalent. Mm. Again, I think it varies from person to person. Um, I think, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the, let's say the, uh, I have a friend who was a sniper during the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. And he lives with the memory Mm. of the human lives that he took in a kind of a secretive way. Wasn't in, you know, eye to eye, arm to arm combat. It was uh, just taking them out one after another. And then there's the person who's driving along uh, the highway where it's 70 miles an hour speed limit and they 
they look down at the speedometer and it says 71 and they, Oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe I did that. I just broke the law. God, what is the matter? I mean, there are people like that. Right. And so there are people who deal with the lingering memory of grievous sins uh, that were defiling, uh, not only to us, but to others. And then there are those who just inadvertently break the speed limit or let, um, you know, an improper word slip out of the side of their mouth. You know, they, they never cuss, they never use obscenities, but once every five years, you know, it slips out the side of their mouth in a moment when they lost their temper and they're just devastated. And the whole point is it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. It doesn't matter uh, what you struggle with, what matters. That's the point of the book. Get your mind off of what you have struggled with and where you have failed and fix your mind on what God has done about it, yeah, yeah. Uh, how he has dealt with it, how he has cleansed you and forgiven you. That's what people need. If they're ever going to be liberated, they're going to be empowered and encouraged to step out, to share their faith, to serve others in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. I think that it's like the book is good because you, you have, you know, each of these different things, but under each, you know, sort of of the 12 or whatever, you've got like subtitles. And I remember just one that stuck out to me is like stomped underfoot. I think even just little mental pictures like that are so, so helpful. Like for me, the one that always helps me is the blood speaks louder. Mm -hmm. So whether I feel bad once a day or 100, I'm like, okay, my defiled conscious is, is pretty loud. I'm like, well, the blood speaks louder. The blood speaks louder. That said, what have you found to be like either for you or for others, sort of the, uh, the silver bullet one, you know, of, of the 12 things that God has done with our sin, what one you're just, oh yes, this one is the, (laughs) this is the salve that I need the ointment. Oh man, you put me on the spot. having choose among the 12. (laughs) Oh, that is or it might even be a one-liner or a passage. Like, what is the that that you just return to? Yeah, I I think so. I I would have to probably come to the language in Psalm fifty-one about being cleansed, washed clean. You know, David talks about wash me thoroughly from my iniquity um, because I just this image of being. You know, we all know what it is when you look down on your shirt and there's this big stain that uh, from the salad you had at lunch that, you know, there's no detergent that'll ever get it out or, um, and, you know, kind of have to live with that. And we feel like that we've got stains of wickedness on our souls that if nobody else can see them, God surely can. The idea of being able to stand before his presence clean, I mean, that that is such a mind-blowing reality. Um, I, I actually, uh, if you'll remember, I closed the book by referring to that doxology in the book of Jude. And I, I'm constantly reminding myself and our people of this, where he praises the one who's able to keep you from stumbling mm. and to present you blameless. I think, all right, just stop right there. So blameless. <laughs> Praise Cleansed. God. Uh, forgiven. And then it says, before the presence of his glory. Now, if it's just you and me, I might be able to feel blameless in your presence, Mm. because you don't know me that well. I mean, you don't know what I think. You don't know the thoughts that race through my head. You don't know what I do when I'm alone and in the dark. Mm. God does. He sees 
everything so thoroughly. He sees it more clearly than I see it myself. And I'm going to stand before the presence of not your glory, his yeah. glory, the glory of the infinitely holy God. And I'm going to know and feel that I am blameless. And then this great phrase at the end of verse 24, with great joy. Mm. So, you know, you talk to people and you say, do you know that you're forgiven? Do you know that you're cleansed? You know, your sins have been wiped clean. They've been stomped underfoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all that. So how do you envision standing before the glory of the infinitely holy God? And they'll say, terrified, terrified, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> trembling. And yeah. Paul, and here Jude says, no, you're going to do it with great joy. Good. That just, it's just mind boggling to yeah. me. Um, Amazing grace, indeed. Yeah, I, you, what you just said, you actually remind me of that when you mentioned the shirt with the stain, because you, you say in the book, you say in the, you say in the book, you talk about how like you have this one white shirt or this one shirt hang up and there's a stain. And every time you, you take it to like the dry cleaners, it comes back with a little note pinned right next to that. And isn't that our lives? Like we are aware, you know, only like the dry cleaner probably really notices that in you, but like, we're always aware, like, Hey, there's a stain right there. And it's almost like God has put, I don't know, the analogies go on forever, but yeah, anyways. Um, let me I, just, let me just uh, tack onto that something. And I think um, what, what people need to hear is that it's one thing to say, um, I have a stain on my soul. There are the other Christians who are so burdened by their sin that they would say, I am a stain. In other words, that's, that's my fundamental identity. I am so wretchedly uh, poor in my obedience to the Lord and so given to my sin that it's not just that there are stains on my soul. I myself and my deepest person am a stain. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a blight. God just simply turns his face away from. And, and that's the person that I want to hear, I want them to read and understand what I'm saying in this book, that that's a lie from the enemy. If you've trusted in Christ, um, you are not a stain. You are a forgiven, blessed, declared righteous child of the most high God. So that's important for people to hear. And here's like sort of your diagnosis that you, that you give <clears throat> as far as what's happening here. You say in the book, let me tell you why we think this way. Let me, tell what, let me tell you why you aren't living in the fullness of the joy and peace and satisfaction in your relationship with God that you so desperately desire. It comes down to one thing and one thing only. You and I have failed to believe what God himself says he has done with our sins. What consumes us is what we have done by sinning. Uh, what ought to consume us is grateful meditation on what God has done with our sinning, end quote. So my question for you here, is our issue here fundamentally a theological one? It, namely that we don't, like Hebrews, like we must pay attention lest we drift away. Is it really this thing of just, we need to preach the gospels to ourselves every day? Is, is that what it is? And know these 12 things and keep returning to them? It is primarily that, but not exclusively. Let me explain that, my answer. I do think that the fundamental underlying problem is that Christians don't know what the Bible says. And that's why I took the time to scour Old and New Testaments, looking for these images, these metaphors, these illustrations that God uses. 
Uh, so, you know, you, you've read it so you know God, is, he's laid our sin upon his son. He's forgiven you of your sins. He's cleansed you. He's covered your sin. Uh, he's cast it behind his back. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. He's passed over it. He's trampled it underfoot. He's cast it into the seas, blotted it out. He's turned his face away over and over and over again. Yeah. It's like God is saying, people, are you listening to me? Yeah. Do, do you understand what I have done? And I, and I just want people to, to be able to see how intent our God is to communicate this truth to us. He cares so deeply for us and loves us so much. He said, let me just, I'm just going to ransack uh, vocabulary and images and analogies <laughs> to try to drive home the point. Oh man. But then there's an additional element. And that is the spirit of God has to awaken our hearts to these truths. Mm. So somebody could pick up my book and, and they could read these declarations or they could even read them in the Bible. But if the, if the spirit of God does not awaken us and enlighten us, you know, I think of um, Psalm 119, verse 18, where the psalmist prayed, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your law. Or Paul in Ephesians 1, he talks about the, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. So I think as we see and read these things, we have to constantly be saying, Spirit of God, I've got so many objections deep down inside to what you're telling me in Scripture. So many reasons why this can't be true for me. True for somebody else, not for me. Right, right. And that's why when we read these things, we have to say, help me, Holy Spirit, help me to see. Help me not only to see, but to understand. And not just understand, but to enjoy and to be able to delight and celebrate in these truths. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is theological, yeah. Uh, but it's also very experiential. It's, you know, there, there are people who probably can memorize all these texts that I cite in the book mm -hmm. that talk about what God did with our sin. And it has no, it has no effect on them at all. Just yeah. kind of hits like concrete and bounces off. Yeah. yeah. Spirit of God has to open our eyes, tenderize our hearts to give us insight and understanding to what God has been saying. So are those people who, would you say that the person who just, it hits like concrete, they believe it, they adhere mentally to it, but they just haven't, um, the spirit hasn't sort of made them experience it, even just that it applies to them. Are they still in Christ? Sure. Oh, yeah. Um I don't want to quantify this by saying the majority, but let's just say there are a whole lot of truly born again, justified by faith alone Christians in our churches who can't get past first base in terms of their, of their Christian growth. And um, sometimes it's because life is just beating the tar out of them yeah. or their spouse has walked out or they just lost a job or uh, people have disrespected them or their dreams have been shattered and come to nothing. And um, they just struggle to think, well, my goodness, if all these sorts of bad things have happened to me, how can I bring myself to believe that God would do the greatest thing that I need dealing with my guilt and my shame, yeah. and my sense of failure. So, yeah, I, yeah. So if I'm talking to somebody, for example, and um, they're pouring out their heart about how, how miserable they are in life and how profoundly um, defiled they feel in the depths of their heart. And they, and they ask me, am I even saved? Mm. And I just ask the simple question, 
is Jesus Christ your only hope? Have you put your hope and your faith, have you invested everything about your present and your future in the reality of what Christ did on the cross for sinners like you? And if you have, and they would say yes, I would say, yes, you are born again. And God wants you to go deeper in understanding the, the benefits and the blessings of this. So much so, and this is the beauty of the gospel, that people who have suffered these kinds of tragedies that I just mentioned, who've yeah. gone through these trials, these burdens, can persevere and endure right through them without losing hope if they know the truth of what God has done with their sin. Yeah. Yeah. That's the foundational underlying kind of bedrock on which they can survive and thrive. So again, I hope no one would ever get the idea that if they read the book and they come to understand what the Bible says God's done with their sin, that suddenly their bank accounts are just going to explode with, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of dollars and their bodies are going to experience constant health and healing and that their relationships are all going to be restored. No, but when those things around you that you're facing just crumble, the one thing that's going to keep you walking forward and holding on is the reality, the knowledge. No matter what may happen to me, there's one thing that never will. God will never separate me from his love because of what he's done for me in Jesus in dealing with my sin. I think a lot of us are, and you hit this in the book hard. I've already read so many long quotes. I'm not going to read it, but. Um, well, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you hit, this is a great line. It says, this is what I mean when I speak of your eternal union with God. It is your position as saved, redeemed, forgiven, justified, adopted child of God. It is a, eternal in the sense that it lasts forever. Nothing can change it, undo it, or reverse it. But these are also non-experiential realities. In other words, you don't feel justification when it happens. You may feel an emotion of joy and gratitude because you're justified, but justification is not something that you experience in your body or your home hormones or even your emotions or affections. Nothing that happens in this life can affect your eternal union. Amen. Your obedience doesn't add to it and your disobedience doesn't detract from it. It is perfect and complete and final, but that doesn't mean your disobedience has no effect whatsoever on your relationship with God. So I had like a bunch of things there. My first one is, I think a lot of us, and I'm sure you would agree, are like functionally Catholics, you know, but like, you know, theologically, we're, we're Protestants. Yeah, grace alone, faith alone, all these solas, but we're like, I better, I better make sure I read my Bible today. So yeah. here's another angle I want to ask you about. Not the person who thinks, woe is me, I have this body of death, but the person who says, yeah, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but as long as they're working for a church or something or they're involved in ministry and they're busy 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 doing christian activity they're feeling pretty good in other words they're sort of functionally milking or almost they without knowing it if you will like bolstering their salvation or something like that i, I know that i've been guilty of that because only when I walk away from like times of, you know, long-term ministry or whatever, I'm like, oh man, I'm not doing much. And then I sort of feel less saved. <laughs> I'm not sure if you yeah. can speak to that. Yeah. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about eternal union. This is one of the most important distinctions I make in the book that I fear Christians don't grasp. And it'll help answer the question you just asked. This difference between what I call eternal union and experiential communion. Mm 
Mm. So, for example, uh, you just described it well, reading my words there, that um, this eternal union is precisely that. It's a union. We are bound together in covenant love with the Lord Jesus Christ, from which we will never be separated. Mm. It's eternal. Nothing in this life can undermine it, overturn it, reverse it, uh, damage it, or diminish it. But during the course of daily living, as we, uh, again, as we fail, as we fall, as we sin, as we do it consciously or unconsciously, that can damage our experiential communion. And again, I, I want people to hear the, the difference between those two words, the difference between eternal and experiential. Yeah. Eternal is everlasting. It, it, it's always there. Experiential is something that's happened to me right now in the here and now of daily living. Union as over against communion. Communion refers to my capacity to enjoy what God has done for me in Jesus. And that fluctuates. That goes up and down. As you said, you know, we, 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 we do something, we fail, we think that we've got to bolster our salvation or boost it or somehow do something to make God love us. No. But the fact of the matter is, um, we can uh, do things that hinder and uh, kind of suppress our capacity to feel the love of God. Yeah. It's not that God has stopped loving us. Yeah. That's, that's true in our eternal union. But we don't always feel the affection of the Father. Yeah. Um, the capacity to enjoy the peace that surpasses all understanding. I'm at peace with God. There's no more enmity there, but that doesn't always translate into my capacity to live in the reality of that peace. Yeah, yeah. Um, joy, the same thing. So my point in, in that distinction is, is that sometimes people, for example, there's this big debate among Christians of do Christians, once they are saved and fully forgiven of their sins, ever have to ask God to forgive their sins again? And people get all confused about that because they're using the word forgiveness in two different senses. Once you've confessed your sins and trusted Christ, you don't ever have to ask for forgiveness for the penalty of your sin again. It is cleansed. It's over. You're justified by faith. But in terms of my ability each day to live in the joy and the freedom and the delight of feeling God's love and, and experiencing you know, the spirit speaking through me, Abba, Father. Yeah, yeah I need forgiveness when I mess up in that arena, it's not, it's not that I'm getting saved all over again. No, that, that's once for all. But there is this relational dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but it's like getting married. You know, when you say I do and it's sealed at the altar, yeah. you don't get married over again, every, over and over again every single day. But when I treat my wife with disrespect and I dishonor her, I come to her and say, honey, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I, I've really damaged our capacity to really delight in each other and trust each other. That doesn't mean that we cease to be married, yeah. but it does mean that the relationship was damaged by something we did. So that's a distinction that's very foundational to the book. No, it's good. And if you're not, yeah, I like the, the marriage analogy. It's like also on the flip side, you're not any more married if you're, if you buy your wife flowers. It doesn't make you more married. You know, it, it might stoke your wife out, but it, it doesn't like change your standing, but you do. It, it's that communion aspect or, of it. Um, in the book, you 
you use for a pretty large portion like David as a, as a sort of a case study, mm-hmm. you know, the Psalms and his prayers. <laughs> I'm just laughing. Just re- <laughs> you guys got to read the book. It's really good. Um, just <laughs> I, for, I forgot what part it is, but when you, when you said a lot of people over, like, <laughs> anyways, the book is good. Um, <laughs> in the book, you said, quote, David had committed adultery. He had stolen from another man. He had defiled a woman who wasn't his wife, like Bathsheba. He had defiled himself. He schemed to have her husband killed. But worst of all, uh, he had violated the honor, glory, and goodness of his God. Is forgiveness still possible for someone like that? And then, you you know, you go on, you share the, these, these passages, and we are all, yeah, yeah, he, he was, you know, he was forgiven. But I was thinking this when a lot of times if I'll talk to a Mormon or something, <clears throat> they'll say, so you're just saying, like, grace never runs out. I could just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, you're always going to struggle. And then they would say something like, so I could just kill someone. And this is why me might be where I'm wrong. I'd be like, well, if you're killing someone, you're, you're probably not a Christian in the first place, but I can't really say that because David legit killed someone. So how, so I guess this is sort of an apologetics or even this is pretty theological nuance. I'm not sure, but how do we do like he, he didn't like look at porn like he had sex with some other lady another you know and he killed like i'm not sure how you've wrestled with that and where you arrive yeah here's here's the issue a christian a born-again believer in jesus can commit any sin except blasphemy of the holy spirit Mm. now the question isn't can a born-again believer commit sins like this whether it's murder or adultery or theft or, or lying or whatever. The answer is yes, they can. The question is, are they broken by it? Mm. Do they live perpetually in an unrepentant attitude of defiance? If they do, if I'm, if I'm talking with somebody who says they're a believer, they say, I've been in the church 30 years, you know, reading my Bible regularly, but they're living in unrepentant defiance of what they clearly know is taught in the word of God, I'm not going to give them the assurance of salvation. I may not be prepared to say you're not saved, but I'm certainly not going to tell them they are. Mm. Um, So again, it's not so much whether or not we can commit sin. The question is, what do we feel in the depths of our soul when the spirit of God brings conviction? um, do Do we perpetually defy him? resist it, refuse to acknowledge and repent and continue in that sin. If that's the case, then there may be serious doubts about whether you ever truly trusted Christ in the first place. Um, but, you know, people, um, people oftentimes come to me, they have over the years, many, many times, and they have, um, they've said, you know, I'm, I'm just struggling with this particular issue in my life. I just battle this one particular sin and temptation all the time. I said, stop right there. Did you hear your words? You struggle. You so battle. So if good. you were not born again, you couldn't care less that you were doing Amen. It's the presence of the fight within you yes. that indicates that the Holy Spirit is at work waging war against the flesh. So, you know, if you came in here and told me all the things you've done and said, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying it and I have no intention of changing, then we've got a problem. But the fact that you talk about struggle, the fact that you really just almost to the point of, I hate to use this language, but I hate myself for what I'm doing. Right. Um, that is the best news in the world. 
That means that, that the Spirit of God is actively in your heart and awakening you to how you're living contrary to the will of God. That happened with David. Now, it took a while. You know, he had somehow convinced himself that it was okay until Nathan came in and stuck that bony yeah. finger in his face and said, you're the man. And then you read Psalm 32, and David was devastated. In Psalm 51, how broken and repentant he was. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want Christians to be discouraged by the presence of sin in their life, um, to think that somehow this means they're not saved. I just encourage you to say, how does it make me feel? Uh, mm. Am I happy with it? Am I content living in it? Or am I going to, you know, am I crying out to God for the strength to wage war against it? I loved this line you just said. It's the presence of the fight. That yeah. is, I, I'm always fighting it. Sometimes, I, sometimes I'm just like, leave me alone, sin. And sometimes I'm on the mat, but I, I do hate it, like fundamentally, you know. So I, I love that's I, encouraging. I, like I tell people, spiritually dead people don't fight. Yeah, right, because right. they're spiritually dead. <laughs> There's no battle being waged. You know, Galatians talks about the spirit waging war against the flesh, mm-hmm. and the flesh against the spirit. And as much as I wish that battle wasn't there, I'm grateful that it is because it means I'm a child of God. The spirit yeah, of God is in me. Yeah. So pastor, have you ever sat down with someone over like weeks and given them your best? Like we're talking parsing Greek and they still have no assurance. Yeah, that happens occasionally. It's not normal. It's not normative, but um like I said, it's typically the person who both has an overly sensitive conscience. Yeah. They've been beaten down verbally and emotionally all their lives by parents, by peers, by teachers, by uh, others who have just said, you are worthless and you're no good. You'll never amount to anything. Um, And the kind of individual who, who can read the things like I write about in the book and say, that's just too good to be true. Yeah, uh, I've got to be able to do something to earn God's favor. Sure. Uh, so sure, there are people like that, but in most instances, when I when I try to bring out to them the teaching of Scripture, I say, "Now listen, listen to what God says. Stop listening to what your own soul says to your soul. Mm-hmm. Listen to what God says to your soul. Here's what He's done with your sin, and then pray that the Spirit of God would really drive that home. Eventually, over time, they can come to the point where they say. Yeah, I, I, I do have confidence that I'm born again. I still don't like what I do, but I'm so grateful for what God did. And that's the key. Now, I'm going to read something to you. It's a message I got from a Facebook friend of mine. Um, I mean, this guy, is, this guy has read everything from Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Bavink, everything in between. So when you, when you and the listeners hear it, don't think that he's like, you know, a protect, like he's not. He, he longs, so he has no security whatsoever, mm-hmm. and he's not trying to find a fault, if you will. So, so as long as we could hear it, understanding this guy wants to, to have a sense that he's right with God, but he does not. And so here's his, here's his message. I was, I know he struggles with it and I knew I was going to talk to you and I just went back and forth and it was just sad, but here's, here's sort of his last message to me, right? He says, um, there's all kinds of qualifications on faith. And before we all like throw the passages, like there, I can see why someone would say this, right? So anyways, there's all kinds of qualifications on faith. I've read books that make faith out to be almost impossible. 
the mustard seed stuff is completely overshadowed by the epistles. And when he said the mustard seed is because I was like, man, do you at least have a mustard seed? Anyways, he's all, it's overshadowed by the epistles. I call them the not so fast letters because they snatch away any hope from the gospels. They are like the fine print. You think you're getting a free gift and it turns out you have to pay $20 for shipping and handling. Uh, there are all these conditions, if this and if that and if the other, not under the law, but you still have to keep the law and you have to keep the law with this and that affection. It's a nightmare. And like this guy is so bummed out. I feel bad because I know he wants. So we'll throw the grace passages and whatever. But the, like this is real. Like these are passages he would think that we all know. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Next one, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. Next one, just two more. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end, the confidence we had at first. And then last one, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. So he's just gonna, you know, I mean, you talk about the if, if then and whatnot in the book, but, but this guy, he's just seen these passages that are like, they really sort of seem to like put a qualification and if there's even a shred that it wouldn't apply to him, that his faith isn't sincere or that he isn't remaining in him, then he's going to apply that to himself. Is there any way around it? Do you have any thoughts there? Um, I think probably I would try to um, first I would I wouldn't want to explore with this kind of person. Um, the kind of life they have lived, because it sounds to me like this is an individual who has been beaten down constantly by criticism, who's often had this high, high standard of expectations laid before him, and um, he's never felt as if he could live up to it. And those in his life and authority over him have reminded him constantly of how he's failed. So he comes to the scriptures with that kind of mentality. Um that's the kind of person that I would want to sit down with and say, look, let's just not worry about all these texts you just cited. We, we can talk about them in due course. Let's think about one passage of scripture, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. None. The guilt that would provoke the wrath of an infinitely holy God has been laid on Christ. He experienced the condemnation you deserved. You have none. It doesn't linger with you. It's not hovering over your head. It's not awaiting you in the future. If you are in Christ, if you've trusted him, there's no condemnation. And once that foundation is laid, then we could explore the text that you just cited, which I think have um, perfectly um, legitimate and intelligible explanations for what they mean or what they don't mean. You know, then there is one other possible, well, say, let's say two other options. It may be that this person is under serious demonic oppression mm -hmm. and that the enemy has just so clouded their mind, so darkened their understanding that they need some serious deliverance prayer. Wow. And then the other final option is maybe this person isn't actually born again after all. Mm -hmm. Um and if that's the case, I just I want to preach the gospel to them. Say, hey, here's the truth of the gospel. Let's walk through it step by step and pray with them. Mm. Um, 
So again, um, I, I think in, in cases like this, there's something at work beneath the surface mm -hmm. that people like this almost don't want to experience the joy of being forgiven. Mm -hmm. They somehow find their value and their purpose in life in constantly berating themselves and thinking of themselves as the worst and the chief of all sinners. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, I, I would have to, to you know, with, um, giving kind of abstract principles yeah. Yeah. for a person that I've never met. You know, I want to sit down and try to get to know this individual and find out more about them and their experiences in life. Um, but honestly, that's precisely the kind of person for whom I wrote this book. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, um, man, I mean, it's so good. It's always good to return to these things. And I just want to say that of all the podcasts we've done, the two highest listening has been one with N.T. Wright and the other one was with you. Mm. And this was the name of that one. Spiritual gifts, often faked, often bizarre, but very much needed. And then the subtitle is Sam Storms is a reformed theologian who speaks, who speaks in tongues and is not insane. And I think we need that. And I'm just so glad I saved that towards the end for if any people probably all know you, but if anyone didn't know you that you, you are very much charismatic and, and believe that God is still on the move and you have radically sh like helped shape the way I believe. And I thought it was uncool to be charismatic, but it's very biblical. So anyways, um, we thank you for, for joining us again. And then again, the name of the book is a dozen things God did with your sin and three things will never do. And that's from Crossway. Sam, I, I, I really appreciate you and appreciate all your, uh, your ministry over there. And you are officially the one who I've interviewed the most now three times. So thank you very much. Hey man, it's a blessing and an honor to have, be on the program. And I, I do hope people will be blessed by this. Um, and that they will just come to rejoice and rest in the reality of what God has done with their sin. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. We came to cheer the sad. We came to lead.